Welcome back to Coffee and Cannabis, the show where I interview professionals, thought leaders, and researchers in the cannabis space to help bring you deeper insight into who these individuals are and how they're shaping the cannabis industry. In today's episode, my guest is Jeffrey Graham. Jeffrey brings years of experience in advertising research and consumer insights working at companies like the New York Times, Twitter, and Google, and is now the CEO of cannabis data analytics company, Pistol Data. In the episode, we talk about the elusive, can it curious consumers, whether or not they're profitable, and how the 80-20 principle applies in cannabis consumers. We talk about how brands can successfully compete and how price and quality still dominate California retail. We also talk about the lack of cannabis data due to its illegality and how we can now make use of a sea of consumer information. Um, I'm super happy to have you here. I'm stoked to um, kind of dive into your yourself and where sort of where you came from and what led you to be into the cannabis space. Um, I know you did you did your bachelor's in, in communications, right? Yeah, I, I started um, uh, started out uh, studying communication um, after college. I moved to Greece and uh, was playing music in bars and started learning about the internet and um, basically kind of hit me on the head that um, the internet was was uh, going to be a, a really uh, important change in the world and I wanted to be a part of it. Uh, so I joined the industry in the late 90s and that was most of my career um, up until cannabis was technology and media companies uh, related to the internet. That's so interesting. And what prompted you to pick up and go to Greece? Uh, I, my wife is Greek and I had okay. met her when I was in college and mm -hmm. fell in love, uh, and, um, so moved after I graduated. That's fantastic. And then mm -hmm. from there you did your PhD. Was it in New York? Yeah. So I, I, I was working in New York. Um, I lived there for 22 years and basically mm -hmm. got my PhD at night while I was, um, working, um, uh, different jobs, um, uh, throughout that, that time. So it took me about, took me about nine years, but I got it done. Right. That's so interesting. And do you find that I, I like that you had the approach of being able to work and do your PhD, because a lot of people that I talked to that were contemplating or that were in school, their big struggle, of course, with doing your PhD is the, the low pay. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So it's interesting that you were able to do both. Um, what made you want to continue doing your studies and what made you kind of want to go into sociology? Uh, those are good questions. When I joined the internet industry. So I, I went to New York City and got mm -hmm. a master's degree in uh, basically an invented major. I called it internet <laughs> sociology because there wasn't really any other way of studying it. Right. And uh, after I got that degree, after a year, I went into uh, the job market and really my approach was let me get any job I can get in the internet industry because mm. I just wanted in. And I applied for a job at a uh, advertising agency, an internet advertising agency as a media coordinator. Mm. And the job was paying $45,000 a year. And I did an interview and the hiring manager called me up the next day and said, look, I, I really, you know, we really liked you a lot and we could give you the job as a media coordinator, but you really to us look like a research guy and we've got a research manager position for $5,000 more. Would you like it? So I became a research guy in the internet industry. And so, uh, getting the PhD was really uh, about, um, 
uh, developing my skills uh, and and my technical uh, abilities and also just helped me uh, stay stimulated mm-hmm. for a long period of time over that decade because um, sometimes it's hard when you're when you're working sometimes you go through patches where you're not learning as much as you right. want to and it was a good compliment to that yeah that's that's fantastic and that's I, I like that you you talk about continuous learning um, and that's something that I'm I'm going through right now having I, I graduated in 2019 and went right into nice. right into the um, the working world after my bachelor's but I still kind of had this longing this sort of itch for academia because it, it's mm. like you said it's that it's that needing to learn it's kind of that desire to to keep growing a little bit but the reason why I asked um, you know between why why you wanted to pursue it was again because a lot of people are sort of well you know can I is it worth sacrificing uh, the next couple of years of my life um, and potentially not work right yeah um, I, I think uh, for me I was able to do both and working gave me really good perspective on what I was studying and Mm. studying really gave me good perspective on work. So um, it it worked out really well for me. Yeah, that's perfect. And that was um, about what year that you started working in in that role? Yeah, so I started uh, in uh, 1998, Mm. uh, my first job in the internet business. Uh, worked for an internet advertising firm. Nobody really knew what they were talking about back then. So it's, it's, it's always a perfect time to join an industry when, you know, you, you can stay six months ahead of people and, and be exactly. the expert. Right. Um, I moved to a startup. Uh, from the startup, I moved to um, uh, another marketing, a bit larger marketing company, uh, and I was the dedicated research person for Procter and Gamble uh, mm-hmm. for two and a half years, which gave me a lot of skills and perspective that I use today in in cannabis, mm-hmm. um, just in terms of marketing and and product development and uh, brand positioning. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And then from there, moving on to from to big companies like Google and Twitter, Twitter in the early stages as well, right? Yeah. So I, I went to the New York Times after uh, after that role, and and I was head of research on the business side there for a couple of years. Mm. Um, and um, uh, then I went to Google uh, in New York and led advertising research. Uh, for for Google, uh, when Twitter the Twitter opportunity presented itself, it, it was it was early. It was mm-hmm. it was still kind of like, is this a company that you know people just tweet about what they had for breakfast? Is right. this a real company? So it was it was it was still pretty early, but um, I saw the potential and and joined uh, a team that was. Uh, six people uh, to lead it. And, uh, you know, we grew so fast. We were at 65 people in two years in 11 countries. And, uh, and, and so that was just an amazing journey to build and create and to hire and, and, and to really flourish uh, within a growing company. That's incredible. In in a growing and a very, a very high level company um, for, I remember exactly when Twitter came out and I thought the same thing that people are going to tweet something like I'm sitting on my couch, which is okay. Yeah. That's fantastic. And what made you kind of see the potential? from there what made you want to pursue that you know when i was at google it was already relatively mature Mm -hmm. and um 
it, it, it's taken me a while to realize that I'm not at my best within a really big company. Mm. Um, but I think I felt it. And, the, the, you know, the opportunity to grow something, mm. to build something from scratch is really exciting to me. It's mm. just that's where my personality uh, um, is, is most comfortable. Mm. So, you know, uh, Twitter, when I joined, was just just building its business, mm-hmm. um, its business side. It, it had millions of users and it was a great technology, uh, but the monetization was new. And so mm-hmm. I, that, that's what attracted me was to to help build a business. And, and it certainly paid off from that perspective. Right. Because you had that growth potential and it, it, it's a, it's blown up into something that I don't think anybody could have expected um, <laughs> with, you know, political and government leaders using Twitter as their source to reach people. And it, it's grown into a very, very large entity that I, I don't think a lot of people expected. Um, Agreed. Are you Agreed. someone that still uses social media for your, your own personal use or is it strictly professional? I use Twitter, um, but um, primarily uh, now I'm uh, producing content for LinkedIn. Right. Uh, I just I, the engagement there is is uh, is so much higher, and mm. uh, I, I feel like I have more to say on that platform. So I, I have my relationships on Twitter. I use Twitter every day, but mm. um, uh, LinkedIn is is my go to right now. <laughs> I found that it, it, it that's a good point in finding sort of the the community and, and Matthew O'Brien who introduced us um, we've talked about it a lot where if you wanted to talk about um, cannabis you can really get that that niche finding on LinkedIn um, yeah which, which is where I find that you can really foster good conversations and you, you really get conversations with people that are super passionate about it percent totally. yeah I, I've really enjoyed it um, so from there, what led you to the California area and what led you to, to cannabis? Well, I, I moved to California from New York while I was working for Twitter. There was an opportunity to, um, uh, to grow within Twitter and move to headquarters and lead, um, market insight for the company. Um, so that brought us out here. I, I always thought that, uh, cannabis was misunderstood as a plant as a substance um i i had a sense uh that uh you know it was not only stigmatized obviously and criminalized um in in a a terrible way that's Mm -hmm. impacted millions of lives but um that it had potential in in ways that weren't being recognized and you know the the data bears that out when you look at the way people primarily, the reasons why they primarily use cannabis, it's to relax for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's uh, 84% of people in California who use cannabis say they use it either for pain, Mm -hmm. uh, sleep, or to relieve anxiety or depression. Mm -hmm. So it's being used in a way that to support people's mental and physical health and to give them comfort. And and I, I always thought that Cannabis was got a very bad rap. Now, that that you know, if you've spent three years in jail for a cannabis offense, you know, you would you would know that a lot more deeply and profoundly than I than I do. But um, I I I understood cannabis from a, a different perspective, uh, and I also saw its potential as an industry, as a transformative industry, Mm. in a way, frankly, that reminded me of 1997 when I was playing guitar in in Greece and and learning about the internet. Uh, So it fit 
with my desire to be part of something that's growing. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I thought it was pretty exciting to, to go from a 25 year career in marketing science to start something completely new mm-hmm. and to, and to basically approach the, a new industry with kind of a beginner's mentality and, and say, how can I contribute? So it, it was kind of those things that all kind of worked together and, um, got me to make the leap. Yeah. And California has a really interesting history with cannabis and with cannabis laws because it was first um, legalized for medical use as people didn't people wanted access to regulated cannabis. People didn't want to be criminalized and persecuted for using cannabis. So they introduced this medical model. Um, And from there, I think you saw a lot of people claiming that they were using cannabis. uh, this medical cannabis for recreational purposes. Um, and now though, I think there's not so much a big difference between medical and recreational use. As you mentioned, a lot of people, the reason why they're seeking cannabis use is either for stress, it's for anxiety, it's for sleep. Um, so I, am curious as to your thoughts of how we can sort of move away from cannabis as being viewed as something, um, that people strictly use to get high, let's say, and mm-hmm. more as a, as a wellness tool. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I do think that the history of cannabis in California is, is fascinating. And, you, you know, we had an era in the seventies of, of, uh, hippies moving to Humboldt, um, mm-hmm. to kind of pursue a life that, that wasn't constrained by society. And, and they grew cannabis as a staple <laughs> because it was a staple of their lives mm-hmm. in the, in the early eighties. Um, in San Francisco, uh, when the AIDS epidemic was really raging, um, there was a really strong activism component to using um, uh, marijuana, cannabis, as a way to um, to comfort people mm-hmm. who are sick and to help people with their appetite, et cetera. So there was a really strong activism and it almost became kind of through sheer uh, mass civil disobedience, um, you know, kind of de facto legal for legal for, for a while. Um, so there is a really interesting, powerful history of cannabis that still runs through the history. You know, it still runs through the industry right now because the industry is basically in a transformation. Um, and, and that legacy uh, industry is, is in many ways dominant in the way that um, the way that the industry is practiced right now. Um, to your question about how we make that transition to, you know, people getting high to, you know, a a health thing, um, wellness. I think certainly education, uh, and better public awareness, better, uh, research. I think there's a lot of things that are going to help with that. I think as the stigma declines and people can be more open Mm. about the way they use cannabis, that will help. You know, if you're at a concert, and you see a bunch of people lighting up, um, and that's your view of cannabis, mm-hmm. even in your own personal experience, you'll be like, okay, this is a party thing, right. but you may not see the grandfather, the grandmother consuming cannabis mm-hmm. in the morning because her knees hurt mm-hmm. or to help her go to sleep. Mm-hmm. And that may be behind the curtain as it were. Mm-hmm. And so I think as it becomes more out in the open, just the simple 
fact of life of the way that the cannabis uh, plant is being used now will mm-hmm. become more apparent to people. Mm-hmm. S- certainly, uh, when it becomes descheduled and people can start to do better research, I think that will help. And then I just think we need to talk about it uh, in different ways. And and there's nuances because there's certainly ways that cannabis can be used in ways that are unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And, and so that needs to be acknowledged and there needs to be an honest conversation uh, as human beings uh, among ourselves and also in the industry about mm-hmm. what, what this plant, uh, what the positive aspects of the plant are and, and what potential negative aspects are. Right. And that that's a really good point about sort of, I mean, we, we know that cannabis was um, largely in the black market for a long time and it was bred for high potency. It was bred for the strong psychoactive effects. And that's sort of what a lot of people started to get familiar with. Mm-hmm. Contrast that with what I call the, the dad grass from, from the early 70s when it was closer to hemp. It was a little mm. bit higher in THC, but still had some CBD. So it was a lot more what I think um, closer closer to what it should be. It was closer right. to that wellness, closer to just mild psychoactive effects compared to um, when you, you have extracts that are very high THC, very high potency. And I, I see a big shift in the market where a lot more people are being more interested in terpenes. A lot more people are being interested in beverages and topicals and extracts. Um, so that, that future outlook is really interesting, but I'm, I'm curious as to what you think. Um, you, I, I remember seeing a post that you made about can of curious individuals mm-hmm. um, and marketing to them. So what I imagine you would market to those can of curious individuals is those, the low strength, maybe the, the, the higher CBD um, products. I'm, I'm curious as to where you think they should fit in into let's say a brand's portfolio and what maybe some missteps we should, we should avoid there. Sure. So my post on, um, can it curious was in reaction to what I think is a, a really strong emphasis in the industry mm-hmm. on reaching new consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and can it curious is sort of like the catch all term for them. Right. My point was, um, m- really a, a, a point in terms of business opportunity mm. that it's really hard to reach somebody who needs to be convinced. If you talk mm. about the elusive can of curious, it's like, well, if you're a brand, <laughs> do you want to try to go after people that are elusive <laughs> or right. do you want to go after people that aren't elusive? Right. It's also just a question of volume. You know, the research that I did when I was at NorCal cannabis, uh, made it pretty clear that, um, there's an 80 20 rule in overall consumption of just the volume of product. And so as a brand, uh, it makes more sense just from a, a revenue perspective to try to reach people that are, could buy a lot of your product mm-hmm. than somebody who may be using product very infrequently. Right. Um, and, and, and many brands don't have huge marketing budget. If you're, if you're Procter and Gamble, you take a little bit of your budget and you try to go after a new target, mm-hmm. but still most of your 
budget, marketing budget is going to be going after um, winning share and, and building loyalty. Right. So, so that was really the point I was making about uh, kind of curious is just how, is it a good business decision mm. to try to reach people who may not be sure? And if they are sure that they're going to try something, it's very likely that they're going to consume a low volume of, of, of product mm. than compared to other users. Right. That, that's, that's a good point in that it was maybe overemphasized. And yes. I think to your point of once sort of the once the image of cannabis starts to dissolve and as cannabis culture sort of evolves especially with consumption lounges in california i think people are going to get naturally curious and like you said just use a lower volume of the product that should be marketed towards the general cannabis users right i i think that's right i think that i think that brands um that that you know the we could get into kind of the role of a brand and, and at this stage, particularly mm-hmm. in California. But um, what the data suggests is that people are looking for value and they're looking for quality. Right. And, and that's true uh, in most industries, uh, most, most um, consumer goods. Mm-hmm. And a brand needs to help consumers navigate value and quality. Uh, and I don't think brands, I think brands overemphasize, uh, kind of the details around personas and Mm. the lifestyles and, and things like that. When uh, most people who are going to the shelf are trying to make sure that they can maximize the, the, the money they have in their wallet and make sure that they, that they don't end up with something that they're disappointed with and it's hard because um supply and and um, the consistency of products and getting it into jars etc and making sure that you have that high quality all the time um, is hard it's also hard to maintain distribution but i think that that's really what what brands need to think about and and that's kind of the first role of a brand is this is a good quality product Mm -hmm. and and it's and it's worth the price right that's that's interesting so what do you think two brands could could do differently just to make sure that they're they're positioning themselves appropriately yeah well obviously it starts with with quality with maintaining quality but i Mm -hmm. think that um and value but Mm -hmm. i think what's what's interesting for brands is to understand what quality means Mm. to their to their target Mm. um is quality um strength is quality Mm. aroma is quality terpenes is quality efficacy um uh, and then what is what is that value equation Mm. i'm sure there are brands where it's like it's a bang for a buck and there's doesn't have to be you don't they don't need to hit high quality on every measure. And so I think that brands need to really be clear about where they fit in that quality value equation and what specifically their consumers um, mean by those things and then make sure that the brand delivers that consistent consistently. Mm -hmm. I I think that brands that do that well over time will be and that can maintain distribution so Mm -hmm. that uh, customers going into a store can buy that same brand over and over Mm -hmm. so that loyalty and and habitual brand um, use. Mm -hmm. Um, um, And then I think that will form over time that relationship between the brand and and that that proposition. Mm-hmm. Um, there's obviously an opportunity too to have the brand more explicitly stand for value and quality, but um, but um, I think that that's really the first 
the first order of business for brands. Yeah. And do you think that over time that a brand that does shoot for, again, that quality consistently, that they can start to outsell the black market? You know, I don't really know. I, I, I know so little about the black market, frankly. The question I would ask is, what do you get in the regulated market mm-hmm. that you don't get in the black market and how how valuable right. is that to the consumer mm-hmm. and you know things like um um you know consistency safety mm-hmm. convenience th- those types of things and, right. and potentially that that's something that needs to be better communicated to con- consumers but mm-hmm. you know uh, clearly there are issues in terms of price. There's issues in terms of convenience. I'm not really sure um, what actually that that competitive framework is because I know so little about the non-regulated market. Yeah, no no worries. And from, I mean, on on the same topic of the unregulated market, do you think that a large part of um, having cannabis data is from people using the illicit market for, for so long? Do you think there's been a gap in, in sort of our knowledge? Well, definitely. I, you know, the habits of the industry are very anti-data. If you right. were keeping data when things were legal, that that was evidence against you in the court of law, right? <laughs> so it's 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 a classic. It's like the 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 bookie who doesn't write anything down but keeps mm-hmm. all the bets in in his head, um, and and not to make a direct comparison between bookmakers and sellers of cannabis, but mm-hmm. it's the same thing in terms of just data was not something that was um, it was sort of purposefully not part of this of the of the deal mm-hmm. um also the people that that thrived in the in the non-regulated pre-legal cannabis market mm-hmm. weren't necessarily the people that were like <laughs> all that into data right? right um so so i do think that we're as a business as an industry are starting um from a place of um that that is kind of uh, you know not very developed just mm-hmm. by the inherent nature of the type of industry we are right you're almost starting from scratch i that's a really interesting point that the legal stores didn't want to keep track because that could u- be used as evidence that's that's interesting and it's frustrating yeah, um, yeah. and it's one of the challenges of data in cannabis are there any other obstacles or challenges in in data in cannabis and sort of where do you see it going from here sure Mm -hmm. sure it's a very fragmented market okay um so many many retailers that are not consolidated and many 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 brands that are not consolidated there are obvious benefits to that for people that are trying to get in the industry and potentially benefits to consumers but it's just the way it is Mm -hmm. so there there's not a lot of um, consolidation Um, the data itself is uh, inherently really 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 messy Mm -hmm. Um, if you think about i don't know sporting goods or cars or something like that there's just a certain amount of products uh skews Mm -hmm. that are that exist in the industry we're we're analyzing and ingesting more than a million records every day of of strains mm-hmm. that um, are 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 so wonderfully diverse mm-hmm. and, and and creative um, in terms of just all of the 
crazy strain names, crazy <laughs> product names. And then, um, and, and there's new things invented all the time. So there's an inherent messiness in the data. There's a messiness that comes from just where the data is, um, is entered and, and, and runs through the industry mm-hmm. partly because of consolidation. Right. And then the third thing is because this is still a schedule one drug, um, from a federal perspective in the U S um, technology, a lot of technology players that aren't touching it. So there's less technology and data in the space. Like Nielsen is not doing a direct cannabis play. IRI is not doing it, you know, Salesforce, Oracle, these, you know, Amazon, these are companies are not trying to solve that data problem because they, they want to stay away from it mm-hmm. from right now. So that's another thing that, um, that makes it still very early stages uh, from a data perspective. Right. And that's where you can come in and provide value, just like you did before, where you recognize an opportunity, you recognize something that, I mean, players literally can't do or won't do. So that's fantastic that you can kind of step in. Um, to your point of there being so much data, how do you sort of differentiate between important and unimportant data in cannabis? And what are you sort of hmm. um, aiming to to refine? That's a really good question. We have um, a vision where th- the data is is useful mm-hmm. to everyone in cannabis. Um, in particular, right now, we're focused on uh, sales teams in California mm-hmm. and helping them um, get in new doors and um, upsell their existing retail clients. And in order to um, make that uh, useful, we have to make it directly related to their day-to-day um, work. Mm-hmm. We have to make it very clear in terms of what this information can actually, how that can lead to a behavior that's going to help you with your business. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the data that is useful and non-useful is really about how can we help people every day make better decisions. And so that means that we have to really simplify things, really make things um, clear and obvious in terms of what people can do with data, um, because we don't have a huge, um, you know, group of people in this industry that want to spend time, you know, boiling data and analyzing it and trying to trying to explore it. Mm-hmm. So that's really our approach is, is trying to uh, make it easier for everybody to use data in cannabis. Mm. Yeah. And has there been anything that surprised you about consumer data insights? Yeah. I mean, uh, so I, I think with the data that we're collecting at Pistol, um, the, what's surprising is um, how regional or how local mm. the market is, uh, you know, the number one flower brand in San Diego is not even in the top 10 in San Francisco. <laughs> no kidding. So, yeah. So, uh, if you're, if you're trying to look at California from a statewide perspective, um, and you have statewide data, um, you're going to miss a lot of opportunities and a lot of nuances. Interesting. And why do you think that is there? There are such regional differences. Is it just because is it from previous culture? Is it from um, kind of what they know? So is there a particular strain that you see more common in some areas versus others? Yeah, I think I think that it's it's not primarily or at least in a way that's discernible. It's primarily due to like 
regional differences of people in San Diego are are different than people in San Francisco. I think most of it is driven by sales and distribution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there there are there this is where you also see um um, kind of the the legacy uh, industry um, being such a big part of the way the industry is done today. There are Northern California cultivators, there are Southern California cultivators, and there tend to be brands that are that are very regional, mm-hmm. that have the distribution relationships, that have the retail relationships. So the, the, it, a lot of it, I think, is is driven by that. Um, it's also for some categories, it's really hard to produce enough product to supply a state of 40 million people. Mm-hmm. So there's some inherent demand, inherent limitations of if I wanted to be the number one flower brand and be in all 760 mm-hmm. odd storefront retailers in California, could I actually do that? Um, so I think that's primarily it. Um, maybe people in San Diego are different than people in San Francisco. <laughs> um, but I, I think that probably a that's probably not what's driving the, the regional differences right now. That's yeah, that's really interesting. And is there in, so in California, you mentioned that there's about 40 million people. I've used the number 35 million for a long time just because there's about 35 million in all of Canada. And in Canada, we're realizing right now that we have a vast oversupply. Is that not the case in California? Can you almost not keep up with with the demand? I think it's it's variable, and this is not my expertise because I'm not really all that close to the supply chain. But right. from a perspective of the consumer, um, over the last two years, there are times where there's an undersupply, and then there's time where there's plenty of supply. But it's it's certainly not consistent. There's there's certainly times in California in the, in the last two or three years where it's been really hard to supply enough product for the market. Um, so um, you know. Uh, it, it, a lot of it has to do with changing regulations. There, there was a time where there was a, a big change in the packaging rules um, for compliance that that created a huge uh, kind of gap in the market. But mm. it, it's it, it is it is really interesting to look across the United States and Canada and see some areas that have too much supply and sometimes too many retailers mm-hmm. and then other other states that have uh, not enough supply and, and, and too few retailers. And it's just, um, uh, you know, it's hard for there to become, for there to get to be in equilibrium when there's so many regulations at play and everybody's experimenting and mm-hmm. everybody's uh, limited to one state or one, um, one territory. You, you mentioned something earlier, which I thought was interesting, was in, in order to generate revenue in cannabis, the, the problem, of course, with these, these new consumers, um, or let's say the cannabis can of curious, is that they may not be consuming and spending a lot of money. Um, and it's, it's a topic I discussed in psychedelics, wherein you don't really hear people consuming um, mushrooms on a large scale at on a regular basis. I'm curious as to what you think of the the outlook of psychedelic legalization and psychedelic commercialization um, mm-hmm. as we've seen states uh, start to decriminalize and allow uh, psilocybin um, and, you know, programs and, and clinics being able to use psilocybin therapy. I'm curious as to what you think the outlook looks like for for psychedelics. Yeah, I, I, I it may be a straw man, but 
I, I don't think I don't think that psychedelics are going to be a market of the size of cannabis for mm-hmm. the reason that you said. I, I don't think it's something that I don't foresee, but mm, it could be wrong. But you know, that's something that people consume daily. You know, uh, at heavy. I just don't don't think that they work that way. Um, at least in my experience. Um, uh, so, but obviously there, they can, they seem to have amazing potential for mm. PTSD and for, mm. uh, you know, psychological help and for opening up the world to people. Right. I think they can be incredibly positive mm. and, and I'm really excited that more people can, can, can try these experiences because mm. I think they're, they're really good for people in mm. some ways with, again, I'm not a doctor or not a real doctor. So <laughs> right. this is not a medical advice, but you know, I, I think there are, there are positive, there, there are positive aspects to it. I just don't see it being a huge mm. industry, you know, but there's, there's kind of this distinction between cannabis and cannabinoids where, mm. you know, there, you, you could see components of cannabis be becoming something that's in a lot of pharmaceutical products or a lot of food products. And, and maybe there's an aspect of, uh, psychedelics, um, which is a huge category Mm -hmm. that the ingredients or the components of those become something that is, uh, you know, maybe in a non psychedelic aspect or something, you know, microdosing, who knows, but it, it doesn't seem to be to me like it's going to be the next cannabis. That's I I agree. A lot of people seem to want to think that Um, the only way I could see it happening is, like you said, if it's less psychedelic and it can be introduced more as a supplement. And you made a really good point about differentiating between just wholly associating cannabis with THC because that's they they're not the same thing. And there are hundreds of cannabinoids that are are left unstudied that I think could be introduced in in people's regular regular lives. Um, And then maybe at that point, like I said, those can of curious are just using a different product. Um, I think the outlook is interesting. Um, And great terms of future outlook what do you what are you excited about for for cannabis data and for for pistol data um i'm excited for you know we're we're basically uh are launching um right now our our general release product uh and we've signed um a bunch of customers so as a product CEO, I'm really excited to get people, having people starting to bang away on it so we Mm -hmm. can learn about um, how to make it better. Mm and, um, you know, that's my primary focus. You know, we're, we're focused on California right now, but there's a whole world of uh, other markets in front of us that will um, that we want to get to. Um, uh, so we're focused on California now. But um, as we see in the U.S., new states coming online and then ultimately, inevitably, it becoming a, a more nationalized or, or multi-state marketplace. Um you know, I really want to find out where's the cheapest weed in the United States of America mm-hmm. or what are the new gummies brands that showed up um, yesterday mm-hmm. across across the country. Um, so uh, that, that that's something that that we're really excited about is just growing from that perspective. Right. Because once you have nationwide coverage, then you have more data and then you can start to make more connections with that data. Yeah, so absolutely. That's, that's certainly exciting. Um, I'm, I, it was fantastic talking to you, Jeffrey. There's a lot of good stuff in the works. You're incredibly awesome. insightful. Uh, and, uh, I, I definitely appreciate you taking the time. 
I appreciate all the great questions. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> thanks very much. And it's very nice to meet you, Alex, and um, look forward to staying in touch. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to hear more from Jeffrey, as I said, give him a shout on LinkedIn, on Twitter. It's Jeffrey Graham. If you want to hear more about Pistil data and how they are changing the cannabis data game, you can check um, you can check them out on socials. It's P-I-S-T-I-L data, data or data. I've switched between both. I apologize. And as always, if you want to hear more from me, give me a shout. Instagram is Coffee Cannabis Podcast. You can find me also on my website. Drop me a line, coffeecannabis.ca. New episodes every two weeks, every other Friday. I'll catch you next time.